there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. It is a tremendous pleasure and a privilege for my husband and me to be here, my first time at the Cove, and I'm very grateful. I especially want to thank you gentlemen for coming. I think that's just incredible that uh, men would actually come and be willing to sit and listen to a woman. But thank you, all of you who have probably had to make very elaborate arrangements to get here. And I don't really expect people to remember much of anything that I say. And that's one reason that my husband comes along with me and we do have some books at a book table. And we always hope that you might take home something. And I would like to mention just two of the books that are back there. One is called Discipline the Glad Surrender. Now this is not a book that you need, I'm sure, but you know somebody that <laughs> does. You might think about doing your Christmas shopping. My most recent book is called The Shaping of a Christian Family. It's the story of how I grew up. I've had so many conversations with young parents who really do want to establish a Christian home, but they didn't come from one. And they say to me, how do you start? What do you do? And so I thought that perhaps the description of what one couple did would be helpful. And that's what I've done. I've told this story as a description, not primarily as a prescription, because certainly each family can do things differently. Not everybody has to do it the way the Howard family did. But I think the principles which are set forth in this book are applicable to any Christian family. So those are just two suggestions. You know what our topic is tonight? It's trust. The topic for the weekend, waiting on God. And God sent an angel to me last night. You know, he uh, has amazing ways of giving me specific illustrations of the kinds of things that I'm going to be talking about. It goes without saying that I've been preparing these talks for many months, and I had some illustrations, which I may also be able to fit in. But last night, God sent an angel to me in the form of a cat. I was a guest in a home, and these people have a very large cat whose name was Chester. He's gained so much weight, he's now Chester Ton. <laughs> so they call him GK for short. Well, I had, uh, no, I had found GK on my bed several times during the afternoon, and so when I went to bed, I wanted to be very sure that the door was closed and that he was outside the door. And I went to bed with the door firmly latched, and about an hour and a half later, when I had fallen into a very deep sleep, I was awakened by breathing in my face. <laughs> well, this can be rather alarming, you know. It could be a human being. And I knew that my husband wasn't there because he was a guest somewhere else that night. So I sat up in bed pretty fast, turned on the light, and of course, there was GK, just as pleased as anything to be curling up on top of the bed with me. Well, it took me a bit of doing to get the cat out of the room and then to try to figure out how in the world he had gotten in there because, as I said, the door was firmly closed, the windows were closed. And first I thought, well, maybe he was in the room when I closed the door, but I was quite sure he wasn't. Anyway, um, I won't go into all the details, but I did discover that there was a hole with a stairway going up to an attic, and he had come down that stairway. Well, it took me a long time before I could discover any way that I could plug up that hole, <laughs> and this kept me awake. So I finally got up and looked around at the books in that room, and I found Viktor Frankl's book called Man's Search for Meaning. I'm sure that some of you have read that book, and many people have told me I ought to, but I'd never had gotten around to it. Viktor Frankl is one of the survivors of the Nazi concentration camps, and he, has written, he wrote this book a number of years ago. Uh, describing 
the, difference way, the different ways in which people responded to that hideous experience. And I was just riveted with some of the things that he had to say. And I thought I would read you a couple of those things, and I think you'll see the application. New arrivals to the camp usually knew nothing about the conditions in the camp. Those who had come back from other camps were obliged to keep silent. And from some camps, no one had returned. On entering camp, a change took place in the minds of the men. With the end of uncertainty, there came the uncertainty of the end. The end of uncertainty, of course, being whether or not they were going to be taken to a concentration camp, that had come to an end. But now there came the uncertainty of the end. It was impossible to foresee whether or when, if at all, this form of existence would end. And he calls this provisional existence, temporary existence, in other words. Regarding our provisional existence as unreal was in itself an important factor in causing the prisoners to lose their hold on life. Everything, in a way, became pointless. Such people forgot that often it is just such an exceptionally difficult external situation which gives man the opportunity to grow spiritually beyond himself. Instead of taking the camp's difficulties as a test of their inner strength, they did not take their life seriously and despised it as something of no consequence. They preferred to close their eyes and to live in the past. Life for such people became meaningless. Now, you can read this book in vain to discover any mention of God other than uh, a very distant one. There's no indication of Viktor Frankl's own faith. But these are spiritual matters that he's talking about. And I thought that that phrase, the end of with the end of uncertainty, there came the uncertainty of the end, when we are waiting on God, which I think every Christian ought to be all the time, we do not have a time schedule in front of us. We don't know when or whether God is going to answer a particular prayer or do a particular thing or get us out of a certain situation or change any of the conditions of our lives. And sometimes we think of our lives as being on hold and I want to try to make it as clear as I possibly can during this weekend that I don't think waiting on God is a merely passive thing. And certainly it doesn't mean that our lives are on hold. Every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every week of every month of every year, we are meant to be living actively by faith. We're talking tonight about trust. And every second is real. When I talk to young people who are in college, they often have this vague notion that the main thing is to get it over with, get these four years over with, so that then I can get out and do something real. You know, there's nothing very real about this. We want to get to the real service for God, or the real job, or the real career, or the real life. And as Frankel points out, that's a dangerous attitude. Such people, he said, such prisoners, lost their hold on life, and everything became, in a way, pointless. And I meet a lot of Christians who strike me as being people who don't have a very clear sense of purpose. No very well-defined direction in their lives. Such people forget that often it is just such an exceptionally difficult external situation which gives man the opportunity to grow spiritually beyond himself. When I went to college, I learned a hymn called, Oh, Teach Me What It Meaneth, a hymn about the cross, that cross uplifted high with one the man of sorrows condemned to bleed and die. Oh, teach me what it cost thee to make a sinner whole. And teach me, Savior, teach me 
the value of a soul. And I had been learning before I went to college to make of hymns my prayers. And when you pray a prayer like that, teach me about your cross, Lord, you can be very sure that God hears that prayer and that he will start answering it. He will do exactly that. And the great test came not until I was a senior in college and I agonizing over the whole question of whether or not God might actually, possibly, be calling me to be a single missionary. I had no question, no qualms, no difficulties at all about being a missionary. I was thrilled to death that during the summer between my junior and senior years, I believed that God had actually confirmed what had been my hope and ambition all my life, that I was to be a foreign missionary. But then I began to ponder the fact that there was no possibility whatsoever on my horizon for marriage, no men on the campus that had showed much interest in me in which I had any particular interest. And suddenly the image of the old maid missionaries that I knew sort of began to loom up as a very real possibility for myself. Now I knew a number of old maid missionaries and I thought they were many of them were wonderful people, but I just really didn't want to be one of those. <laughs> I wanted a husband, I wanted a home, I wanted children. And so I began to pray about that and hammer away on God's door asking for his answer. Was he going to give me a husband? And he didn't say yes, and he didn't say no. He said, trust me. Well, I knew that trusting God might mean that I was to be single for the rest of my life. But I came to the point after wrestling and a certain amount of agonizing in prayer of saying, yes, Lord, if that's what you want, I will take it. Because years before that, about eight or nine years before that, I had prayed a prayer that a missionary in China had taught me. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt and work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. And it got through to me that God was saying, remember that commitment? And I said, yes, Lord. And he said, did you mean it? And I said, yes, Lord, insofar as a 12-year-old girl could mean it. A 12-year-old girl doesn't know what's in store for her, nor does a 20-year-old, nor a 60-year-old. We don't know what God has in store. That's what it means to walk by faith. That is what trust is all about. Trust goes into operation when there are no, when there are no answers when we are, as it were, uh, bewildered, perplexed, sheep needing a shepherd. And the sheep learn to trust the shepherd. And so when, once I had made that commitment, then God in his amazing providence allowed me to fall in love with a certain young man on the campus and him to fall in love with me, but neither of us knew about the other's feelings for a number of months after that. But it was just before I graduated that Jim revealed his feelings to me. This was Jim Elliott, fellow student. And there began a very long period of literal waiting. And of course, like hundreds of young people who write letters to me and tell me their sob stories about their, quote, relationships. You know, everybody has relationships nowadays. And I do my best to find out what in the world these kids are talking about. What sort of a relationship is it? They aren't boyfriend and girlfriend. They aren't going steady. They've never even heard of that expression that comes out of the dark ages. Um, sometimes they say they're dating. Sometimes they're not. But, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, like, well, well we just have this well, I mean, you know, it's just really neat. I mean, we have this relationship, you know, and this guy or this girl, and, um, well, like, um, I don't know. So we didn't have anything that would be defined as a relationship, 
But these young people are waiting for a husband, or they're waiting for a wife. And that's not exactly what we're talking about this weekend. We are waiting on God. And it is worth everything that I can muster to try to help these young people to understand that is much more important than waiting for a husband or waiting for a wife or waiting for something to happen or waiting for something to change in your life. Learn to wait on God. And realize that this period of waiting is reality. This is the point at which God is dealing with you. And he's trying to teach you those two simple words, trust me, trust me. And we ask God for his answers about things, and sometimes he says yes, and sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says wait. But I think he always is saying, trust me. Well, it's, I'm not going to go into the long story about the waiting for Jim Elliot, but that was my first and most painful and long-lived experience of waiting on God, because I knew that I could not wait for Jim Elliot. He had told me right after telling me that he loved me and that he would love to have me for a wife, but he was not proposing to me. He made it very clear that God was calling him to be a missionary in South America. I thought I was going to Africa myself. And he thought that it was very possible that God might be asking him to remain single for the rest of his life because of having to do pioneer work, which might require that. And I understood that point of view, and so we had to leave it with God. It was hard to face up to the people who were coming down on us and saying, well, you know, when's this guy going to make up his mind, or when are you going to make up your mind, or expecting that we were waiting for each other. And that, of course, was not the point. It was a clear-cut case of having to wait on God. If God ever gave Jim the green light to propose to me, then I knew what my answer would be. But my job for the next, and of course I didn't know any more than the prisoner in the concentration camp knew when or whether this would ever happen. And so it was moment by moment, day by day, week in and week out, month in and month out for five and a half years before God did finally bring us together. And that was after we had both been missionaries in different areas of Ecuador. I on the western side of the Andes working with the Colorado Indians, Jim on the eastern side of the Andes working with the Quichuas. We did get married finally in 1953 in the city of Quito. And we went to work together among the Quichuas. And as you saw on the film a moment ago, there came that very exciting day when Nate Saint came in to tell us that he had discovered the whereabouts of a tribe for which we had been praying for a long time, but nobody had ever gone in there. And I think it would be of interest to many of you here who might not know that the daughter of Nate Saint is here tonight. Kathy, would you stand up? Where are you? <clears throat> <laughs> Kathy, is all, her husband is Ross Drown, whose father was the head of the ground party that went to find, who hoped to rescue the five men. So I knew that that would be of interest, and she says she sent me a note to tell me not to do that, did you? <laughs> I don't always obey everybody, Kathy. Thanks for coming. They live right here in Asheville, so I'm sure some of you know her. But um, one of the things that Jim was doing when this news came in about the Alcas was building us a house. He had not quite finished building what seemed to me a very civilized and very luxurious house because it had cement floors and real boards for walls and aluminum for a roof. And he also made all the furniture, most of the furniture that went into that house. Well, I am a person of insatiable and for my poor husbands, all of them, Infuriating curiosity, ask Lars. Um, I need to clarify the fact that I have my third husband with me here, Lars Grin. My second husband is with the Lord, as is the first. But I think all three of these men found, found it hard to take that I was so curious about so many things. 
And one of the things that used to drive Jim absolutely around the bend was when I would come around when he was working on a piece of furniture and with his power tools and whatnot, and I would be saying, now, what is this thing for? Or why are you cutting it that way? And why this? And what's, what are you going to do with that? And he would say, would you get lost? You know, I know what I'm doing. Trust me. Just trust me. When I'm finished, you'll have the answer to your question. How do you deal with God on this matter of trust? Do you need guidance in your life? Do you need for something to happen? Are you asking him to change something? One of my favorite verses, and a verse that my mother gave me many, many years ago, was Naomi's answer to Ruth, sit still, my daughter, until thou see how the matter will fall. And the Lord had given my mother that verse when she was worried about the possibility of being a foreign missionary. She wasn't worried about being a single missionary. She was worrying about being a missionary at all. She just thought it would be perfectly dreadful if the Lord should call her to be a missionary, perhaps in some awful place like Africa or something. And uh, when she began to pray about it, the Lord just said, sit still, my daughter, till thou see how the matter will fall. She was also worried about the matter of marriage, and of course the Lord took care of that, gave her a husband, and also made her a missionary. So three things that you can put down in your notes, and I'll do my best to help you uh, put them down in some sort of order. The number one is, for whom do we wait? Number two is how, and number three is for what? Where does our security, our confidence, and our trust lie? Isaiah 40, verses 21, and several verses thereafter, says this, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. And skipping down to 25, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one, and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But they that wait on the Lord, the New International Version says, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary they will walk and not be faint. That God who stretches out the heavens, who calls the stars and leads them out one by one, is he trustworthy? Do you think that the God who can manage the galaxies and who designs the tiniest little animal, who creates a baby, do you think there's a possibility that maybe he can run your life? That you can trust him to give you what's better than your, your wildest imaginings? For whom do we wait? We wait for this God, this creator God, this redeemer, this shepherd, this savior, this friend, this Lord, this master. This kind of waiting is an act of trust. 
It is not merely passive. Waiting on God is a willed and deliberate act of trust. It doesn't necessarily have to do anything with your feelings. It's a matter of choice. And this is another thing that I found in Viktor Frankl's book. Stunning proofs that the people in concentration camp survived or didn't survive very often by choice. They could choose to respond in a different way than would be seemingly just perfectly natural and human. And he gives example after example of the people who made this choice, that we are not at the mercy even of the guards in a concentration camp, let alone at the mercy of our circumstances. We can choose. And I, keep, I kept wanting him to say, trust God. You can choose to trust God. But he doesn't go that far. But that's what I want to say to you. And I have a little shelf of books at home uh, written by my grandfather. And I have, I'm ashamed to say that I had never read these books until just this past year. And in one of them, I came across this lovely paragraph. It's from a little book of his called When Days Seem Dark. Standing still on some occasions is the paramount duty of the follower of Christ. There are times when we must be merely onlookers, when the flesh and the brain refuse to work, hopes shrivel like autumn leaves, and we simply do not know which way to turn. It may be just then that we shall learn for the first time how to stand still in perfect peace and quietness of soul, not idling away our time, not hopelessly limp and heedless of the outcome, but working on in such ways as may be given to us, observing with eager joy the way in which God will work it all out to a perfectly glorious ending. All our little fussiness and haste, all our strong anxiety and warping care are as futile as the tugging of a little child's hands at the great iron knob of a closed and barred gate through which his loving father does not care to have him go just then. The message to the Church of Philadelphia in the book of Revelation was these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David. What he opens, no one can shut. I know your deeds. I know that you have a little strength, yet you have kept my word. I have loved you. You have kept my command to endure patiently. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. God commands you and me, as well as the church in Philadelphia, to endure patiently. I don't think that comes naturally for most of us, does it? We endure with clenched teeth and white knuckles. Patience is one of the fruits of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience or long-suffering, the willingness actively and peacefully and joyfully to trust him who is worthy of our trust. We are in his hands. We are encircled with his fatherly care. You know, the Bible says, as the mountains are round about Jerusalem, or we might say round about Asheville, so the Lord is round about them that fear him. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And his tender mercies are over all his works. Is that a safe place to be? Encircled, upheld, and overshadowed by his tender loving care. Look to God, wait in patience, and light will come. Psalm 18:28. And so God is saying to you and me, just what my husband Jim had to say to me countless times, trust me. Trust me. And Lars has to say that to me, too. I get all fidgety sometimes about flights and where he's taking me. And he comes up with a lot of surprises. And he doesn't explain himself nearly as much as I want him to. And he says, trust me. 
this is my lesson in trusting God. I have to trust God in my husband. And that's a lesson that I have to be reviewing virtually daily. Now, how do we do this? We're down to point two now for you note takers. Now, this does require my cooperation, a conscious, deliberate choice to put myself completely in his presence, within those encircling arms, and utterly at his disposal. I'll repeat that. How do we wait? How do we trust him? How do we wait on God? This requires my cooperation, a conscious, deliberate choice to put myself completely in his presence within those encircling arms, utterly at his disposal. Most of us are too vehement, too headlong, too impatient. And Viktor Frankl says, we who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And there were always choices to make. Every day, every hour, offered the opportunity to make a decision a decision which determined whether you would or would not submit to those powers which threatened to rob you of your very self, your inner freedom, which determined whether or not you would become the plaything of circumstance, renouncing freedom and dignity to become molded into the form of the typical inmate. Now, of course, I believe in the grace of God, and I believe that every man in concentration camp who acted in this way that he describes, walking through the camp, comforting people and giving away the last piece of bread, that certainly came from the grace of God, whether they themselves realized it, whether Frankel realized it or not. You know, God's grace is poured out on all of us all the time. As the Bible says, he makes his sun to rise on the just and on the unjust and the rain to fall as well. But since we do know the Lord and we are eager to learn to know him better, then we can be much more specific about the kind of choices we are not at the mercy of circumstances. Now, if Frankel could say that about a concentration camp, where if ever there's a human experience where you are totally at the mercy of wicked men daily, men with whips, men who could starve you to death, men who would come and put out a fire that a few poor shivering men were trying to warm their hands in order to hold the tools that they were forced to use, if they could make choices, you and I can trust God to help us with our choices. A conscious, deliberate choice to put ourselves utterly at his disposal. And I think a very simple illustration of a human way of putting ourselves at somebody else's disposal is if you want to learn to swim. If, you've got, if you're going to learn to swim, then there has to come the point where you are going to do what the swimming coach tells you, which is trust the water. And probably, if you're learning to swim when you're a very small child, uh, you, you have to learn first to trust your daddy's hands. He's telling you, just lie down. Lie down on top of the water. The water will hold you. Daddy will hold you. And the child doesn't want to. He's tight, and he's sure that daddy's going to let go of him. And finally, if you've ever learned to swim at all, you've finally come to the point where you realize that the sooner you do what the swimming coach tells you, the sooner you will learn to trust the water because it is the water that ultimately has to hold you up, requires our cooperation. Now, simply um, to define waiting on, think of the word waiter. A waiter waits on. He is not necessarily waiting for the customer. He is there waiting on whatever need there might be. He waits for the customer's orders. He is there, in effect, saying, anything you want? 
It means to be alert, watchful, attentive, and to rest in expectation. To remain in readiness to follow orders. And we are God's servants, aren't we? So we're not waiting to give orders. We are waiting to follow orders. We're waiting to be given orders. And we are to be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything whatever. God says to us in Philippians 4, Paul's word, the King James Version says, be anxious for nothing. J.B. Phillips' translation, don't worry about anything, whatever. Don't do it. It's a sin. It's forbidden. So we are waiting in perfect resignation and unconditional acceptance. Back to that prayer of commitment that I learned from the missionary to China named Betty Scott Stam. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes and accept thy will for my life. Work out your whole will in my life at any cost. At any cost. And if it costs us our lives, so what? You know, it really doesn't make any difference whether we're dead or alive as far as God is concerned because, as Paul said, whether by life or by death, that Christ may be magnified in my body because to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You remember Jesus' words, he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. And this incredible story of the concentration camp tells of those who were willing to lose their lives quite literally in the form of giving up that very precious crust of bread. And they got only 10 ounces of bread and less than a quart of soup, thin watery soup per day. That was it. And many of the people turned into just animals when they would go grabbing for the food. And there were those who were willing to give up their right to themselves, give up their lives if necessary, in order to comfort other people. And they were the ones, generally speaking, that did survive. So if you lose your life for my sake, Jesus says, you'll find it. But the how is to wait attentively, watchfully, resting in expectation, expecting that God is going to do what's best for you, not necessarily what you want him to do when you want him to do it or in the way in which you want him to do it. If God had told me when I was a senior in college that I was going to have to wait five and a half years before I would have his answer, let alone Jim's answer, I would have been crushed by the weight of that knowledge. Isn't it merciful that God doesn't tell us very much ahead of time, because he doesn't give us the grace in advance. The children of Israel were not allowed to gather manna in advance, except the day before the Sabbath. God gives us grace in time of need. So we wait in perfect resignation, in perfect trust. Be still before the Lord, says Psalm 37, 7 or rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. And one of my favorite hymns is, Be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways, leads to a joyful end. I do know just a few people in this audience. It's been nice to see some of my friends here. But about their lives, I know very little. And of course, I know nothing at all about most of your lives. So I have no idea what you might be waiting for or what you are waiting on God about. But I would hope that the words of this beautiful hymn by Katharina von Schlegel 
would apply to your situation. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Some of you undoubtedly are suffering very heavy crosses of grief or pain at this time, and probably most of us not so heavy, but something. You know, the cross can never be anything but painful because it is an instrument of torture. Jesus bore his cross and he says, if you want to come with me, take up your cross. Say yes to the Lord. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Some of you perhaps are out of a job. Some of you are in a very painful transition point. You don't know what's going to happen. Maybe some of you are having to move. Some of you may have just lost someone. It just seems as though the bottom has dropped out of everything. In every change, he, faithful, will remain. Be still, my soul. Thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. It's not my nature to be patient or quiet or still. I come from a very nervous family. Everybody in our family was, has nervous twitters and twitches, and we're all the kind of people who race around and do everything fast. And there's no natural patience in any of my genes whatsoever. But time after time after time, the God, God has put me in a situation where I had to learn to be still, to wait patiently for him, not for somebody else, but for him. Because in his time, if, one, if somebody needs to do something, God is the one to move that person, not me, to shove them. That's what it means to wait on God. Now, what is it that I am waiting for? We're down to the point three. For what do I trust him? Well, we could come up with 100 illustrations from the Bible, couldn't we? But think of Daniel as one example. When the edict of the king went out that no one was allowed to pray to any god except his, we find that steadfast, pure young man, Daniel, making not the slightest alteration in his daily habit of prayer. He might have thought of praying in a less conspicuous place. He might have thought of not opening his window, at least. He didn't have to be there in broad daylight, so obviously, where he could be detected and betrayed. But nothing interrupted the smooth harmony of his life. His habitual prayer time was carried on without a ripple. And what happened? He was found. He was reported. And he knew what the penalty was going to be. Just imagine the interval between the time when he was betrayed and brought before the king and when he actually reached the bottom of the lion's den the pit. What eternity of agonies of soul he might have experienced. Um, if you were going into a lion's den, would you be thinking as I would be, where does a lion start on you? <laughs> where does he begin his appetizer? You know, but then what? How does this feel? I mean, I can just imagine. I have a very vivid imagination. And there was that waiting period. There was an interval of some minutes, I would assume anyway, if not hours, before J Daniel actually was face to face with the hungry lions. But his trust was in God. And the trust of his three friends, Shadrach, Shadrach Meshach, and Abednego, when they were about to go into the fiery furnace, you remember the kings asking them, do you really think that your God is able to deliver you? And there was no question in their minds that he was able to deliver them, but there was another question, was he going to? And they didn't know the answer to that one. 
But they said, be it known unto you, O king, if not, we will not bow down to you or serve you. Doesn't make any difference to us whether our God will save us. We know he can. But we want you to know that we're not going to bow down. We will not capitulate. That's trust. God's action, God's will, is made known to you and me by events. That's the way he does it. Now, of course, that's not the only way he does it. He can make known his will through the scriptures, sometimes through very specific scriptures. If you're agonizing over some sort of a decision about which God has spoken the final word, then all you need to do is obey that word. My son-in-law happens to be a minister, and he received a phone call one time from a man who said he had a big problem that he wanted to talk to him about. Could he come over? And so he came, and he started in on his story, and it took him not more than five minutes before my son-in-law knew what the whole story was going to be, but he listened patiently through the whole hour of this man's recounting of the, of the tale, and the situation was that he was in love with somebody else's wife, and this man had his own wife, and he was in love with somebody else's wife, so when he fin finally when he stopped talking, my son-in-law said to him, is that all? And he said, yeah. Well, he said, didn't you tell me on the phone you had a problem? He said, yeah. And Walt said, what's the problem? He said, you know what God has to say about that. You didn't have to come and ask me. Thou shalt not commit adultery, period, case closed. What is there to, to discuss? So when God's will is that cut and dried, there's no need for any waiting around or agonizing in prayer over what you're supposed to do. You know, if you suddenly find that uh, the toilet upstairs is running over and leaking through the living room floor, you don't drop to your knees to pray about whether to call the plumber or go up and do something about it yourself. You know, there are a lot of things which are perfectly clear, but when I say God's will is made known to us by events, Sometimes his word is perfectly clear. The event in this man's life was that he'd fallen in love with somebody else's wife. God's word is clear as to what you do about that. But we can't thumb through the Bible and find an answer to, shall I buy this car? Shall I take that job? Shall we try to sell this house? There are principles there. But it's amazing how when we are still before God, rather than trying everything else first, which seems to be a human propensity, just stillness before God clarifies things so often. And for you young mothers, when you find yourself in a very seemingly hopeless tangle with your children, and you just do not know what to do about it, it's amazing what just maybe 30 seconds of stillness just stop and look up and say, Lord, show me. You know, he can show you in 10 seconds, 5 seconds. But his action, his will and his action are made known to us by events. And to go back to the story of Jim Elliot and his belief that possibly God was asking him to remain single for the rest of his life, it took his experience of going to the jungle, living there for a year with a single man, um, assessing the situation, doing the kind of work that he knew God had called him to do, and he began to realize that there was a woman over on the other side of the Andes in another area of the jungle doing almost exactly the same kind of work, and he put two and two together, and he figured it's not going to be a hindrance to be married to that particular woman because she's prepared for this kind of work. So events clarified for him the will of God, his jungle experience. Well, then after we got engaged, we thought, he, Jim said to me when he asked me to marry him, he said, you know, we may have to wait about five more years 
before God gives us a green light to get married. And I said, why in the world do we have to wait five years? He said, because I've already committed to build two other houses for two missionary families. Well, that just infuriated me. I thought, what's the matter with these missionaries? Why can't they build their own house? Jim's not a, you know, he's not a construction engineer. He had majored in architectural drawing when he was in high school, and that was about the sum and substance of what he knew. But he had volunteered to do this, and so that was that. Well, Jim said to me, unless something cataclysmic happens, and it was about eight months later that something cataclysmic happened. The entire station on which Jim had been working, including the foundation of one of these new houses that he was going to build, was swept down the Amazon in a flood. And a few weeks later, he and I got married. <laughs> the will of God is made known through events. After Jim died, I, say, I prayed what seemed to be an incredible, incredibly rash prayer. I said, Lord, if there's anything you want me to do about the Alcas, I'm available. Feeling quite safe in praying such a prayer, that there would be no remotest possibility that God was going to ask me to do anything about those people. But one day, I happened to be in an unusual place when two Indians arrived at the front door and they said, we've got two Alka women at our house. Would you like to come and see them? Just an utterly unimagined event. And that's what opened the door to our going in to live with the Alkas. Events reveal to us the will of God. So you have three points, for whom do we wait, how do we wait, and for what. I'd like to close with one of Amy Carmichael's lovely poems referring to the story of Jesus asleep in the boat during the storm. Thou art the Lord who slept upon the pillow. Thou art the Lord who soothed the furious sea. What matter beating wind and tossing billow? If only we are in the boat with thee. Hold us in quiet through the age-long minute. While thou art silent and the wind is shrill, can the boat sink when thou, dear Lord, art in it? Can the heart faint that waiteth on thy will? God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.